Hello and welcome to a special US-themed edition of the Lancet Psychiatry podcast. My name is Niall Boyce. I'm the editor of the Lancet Psychiatry, and I'm very pleased today to be joined down the line uh, by Rebecca Cooney, who's the Lancet's New York editor. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, thanks for having me. So um, I'd like to start off with a bit of a, a chat about U.S. politics in general. I mean, I quite enjoy politics as a, a spectator sport. Um, do you have a, a long-term interest in, in U.S. politics, Beck? Um, you know, I go in and out, and I think in this, this election in particular has made it um, almost impossible for people not to get engaged somewhat. Uh, there seems to be a rather lot at stake. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always seen um, U.K. elections as being sort of black and white Ealing comedies and U.S. elections as being grand widescreen 3D events. Um, but, but this year it just seems to be a bit, a bit darker, a bit stranger perhaps than it's been before. And this, this is something I think which um, the president of APA, American Psychiatric Association, Maria Akendo, picked up on in a blog she wrote recently where she said that um, the election seems like anything but a normal contest that has at times devolved into outright vitriol. Uh, and then she adds something which, which I thought maybe we could talk about, because it's, it's quite interesting. She says that the unique atmosphere of this year's election cycle may lead some to want to psychoanalyze the candidates, but to do so would not only be unethical, it would be irresponsible. And she's talking about something called the Goldwater Rule. Um, is, is that something you're familiar with, Beck? It is, and I went back and, and did a little bit of a brush up to kind of um, to, to give some context, you know, historically. The, the Goldwater Rule is, is somewhat interesting in that it, it um, wasn't enacted until almost 10 years after sort of the defining Goldwater moment, which was a magazine that's now defunct, basically running a survey of psychiatrists and asking um, whether at the time, if Goldwater um, would have been fit uh, for office. And it's very interesting to think that, that something of that nature would have happened then, um, back in 1964, I think. Um, and there are a lot of parallels to currently what people are discussing um, in that Goldwater, Barry Goldwater, was um, really sort of a bombastic figure um, you know, lots of off-the-cuff thinking, lots of sort of um, big claims, and um, so there there are a lot of parallels with Donald Trump there. Um, but what's also interesting, I think, is putting it even more um, into the context of how the United States um, treats both mental and physical ailments and in terms of, of how we evaluate the fitness of candidates. And um, what I thought was really interesting is sort of thinking back to, for example, like Abraham Lincoln, who was sort of a textbook melancholic figure. And at the time, that may have actually been to his benefit as a candidate and that it made him somewhat more approachable or that people felt sort of a kinship with him, something about the 19th century zeitgeist that, that you know, his um, sympathy that they had with him is, is sort of interesting that that same um, dimension probably is not something that would, would work out in the candidate's favor these days. And then sort of Fast forwarding to, for example, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who 
So there aren't a lot of accounts about his mental health. Clearly, he was somebody who had um, physical ailments. He was diagnosed with polio or contracted it when he was about 39. And both during his candidacy and, and pregnancy, there were so many pains taken, I think, to kind of control the optics of his situation and to, to make him seem sort of impervious and, you know, making sure that photographs of him weren't taken as he was entering cars and exiting. And so there, somehow in, during the, the time that elapsed there, this sort of um, ableist narrative emerged that, that somehow presidential candidates should, should be these impervious people who, who don't have any sort of physical or mental ailments. And so compounding that with something like the Goldwater Rule is, is really interesting because not only um, is there kind of this, you know, top-down gag order of not to discuss it, but, but not only that, it sort of lends to the, the stigma of that. And another really notable example that's um, somewhat different but, but related was Thomas Eagleton, who um, in 1972 was the Democratic vice presidential candidate um, with McGovern, with George McGovern, and um, who was running against uh, Richard Nixon at the time. And uh, Eagleton had been hospitalized for depression several times during his life, something that wasn't disclosed uh, to George McGovern. And Eagleton hadn't been the first choice, um, and I think there was a lot of pressure to find a suitable candidate uh, for the vice presidential spot. And so once the whisperings of this sort of came out and then talk over electroshock therapy, um, Eagleton had to withdraw himself um, from being a candidate, um, even though there seemed to have been some expression in popular media like Time Magazine, where a lot of people said, you know, we're not sure that this would impinge at all on his ability to, to be a leader. So, so this is really interesting. There's both a precedent that, that, uh, that having a mental health history could uh, be a detriment to a, can- a candidate's sort of viability, um, but it's, it is really interesting that, um, that the APA would have such a, a strong sort of revisit of the Goldwater Bowl here. I mean, one thing which interests me is that this, uh, the election in question, which was in the early 1960s, was really an election at the, a point in time where the whole issue of nuclear war was clearly very foremost in, in the American people's minds um, in, in, in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I wonder if it's this power which the American president is perceived to have of really having immense sort of global destructive capability at his or her fingertips, which, which has maybe fed into this, as you put it, ableist narrative, the idea that uh, the president has to be superhumanly, physically, and mentally healthy. Right, yeah, I think it's the, the who has the finger on the button. Um, and in a way, that, you know, sort of behooves the question of, of mental health fitness as opposed to physical health fitness, yet there has been just as much discussion about physical health in this um, election cycle, especially, particularly, a lot of... Um, more right-wing conservative groups, uh, you know, pouring through evidence trying to suggest that um, Hillary Clinton has some neurological problems and things like that. Um, well, I think there is something, too, about this election in particular that is making these issues more salient, and I think a lot of that has to do with kind of the global climate with terrorism and um, also potentially changing relations with 
with Russia and, and the involvement there. So it is it's really interesting to think about. But clearly, you know, talking about health is not new at all in election cycles. In fact, uh, you know, when, um, oops, sorry, I'm totally forgetting his name now. <laughs> uh, John McCain, for example, was running for office. He had um, had melanoma diagnosed on his face and that was an issue. He was also 72 at the time. Now we have two candidates who are either 70 or on the precipice of 70. And these are very different. Obama was 47 when when he um, started his presidency. So there are really different components of health. So is it more legitimate to to ask a psychiatrist not to speak on someone's mental health? Is that is that a more legitimate? Um, ask than than having um, physicians comment on health more generally. I'm, I'm I'm not sure that it that it absolutely makes sense to do that, but um, it's definitely something interesting to think about that this is this is an unusual election in that sense. Yeah, it's probably worth reminding ourselves here of what the Goldwater Rule actually says, which is that uh, psychiatrists can be asked for opinions about an individual who's in the light of public attention or who has disclosed information about himself, herself, through public media. Now, the, the advice is that a psychiatrist may share with the public his or her expertise about psychiatric issues in general, but it's unethical for a psychiatrist to offer a professional opinion unless he or she has conducted an examination and has been granted proper authorization for such a statement, which is a way of saying, if you do know the person in question and you've talked to them, it's unethical to disclose information without their consent, and if you don't, it's very ill-advised and, and also probably unethical gossip. And there has been um, definitely fallout, not necessarily with the Goldwater rule in particular, but also, you know, for example, people who are um, physicians with TV shows in the U.S. and making suggestions about the candidate's health and that there, there have been um, some, some potential implications of doing that without having had any sort of contact with the candidate. Well, this, as you said, is a particularly fraught election, um, considering the, the, the global situation at the moment. But of course, uh, a great deal hangs on the domestic situation as well, of which you know, mental health is, I think, increasingly uh, a, a big issue. Uh, in fact, a few years ago when I was at uh, APA, the speaker... Uh, the guest speaker was Bill Clinton. He didn't actually turn up in the room. I don't think he was he was well at the time, so he uh, he communicated over a video link. And um, the impression I got uh, is that uh, for the, for the Clintons, uh, mental health issues are, are seen as as being something of a priority. Now I'm not sure that that Donald Trump has really spoken that much about health care at all, and especially about mental health care. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. So. Um, as of this past week, Hillary Clinton put out uh, her comprehensive agenda on mental health. She's actually uh, been met with, with what sounds like some pretty good support from high-profile groups like the National Alliance of Mental Health, um, NAMI. But on the other side, you know, Donald Trump's website has, I think, you know, three mentions of, of mental health in, in uh, different contexts, such as gun control or gun rights, as a, as rather. Um, so there's, there is a mention of it, but there's clearly not the same developed sort of offering in terms of something that can be evaluated uh, in terms of policy. But what is really interesting, and I think it sort of typifies this sort of unusual election, is that 
you do have fairly strong bipartisan support for some type of mental health reform in the country. And most of that being sponsored by people that you would consider Washington insiders, which is which is sort of the antithesis of how Donald Trump is portraying himself. So within Congress, you have um, both in the House and the Senate, um, those that have been uh, put out in the last year, the Senate has a Mental Health Reform Act, and in the House, um, the House itself, uh, the Helping Families and Mental Health Crisis Act, which uh, passed overwhelmingly. I think there are only two abstaining votes. Um, on that, so both Republicans and Democrats in support of doing something. I think where the breakdown comes is in the actual implementation of plans that we've come up with lots of sort of uh, pie-in-the-sky ways of overhauling mental health care in the U.S., but it still remains to be seen, you know, where the funding will come from and how these um, different programs might actually translate into care. But with regard to Hillary Clinton's specific plan, um, some of the areas that she sort of called attention to, for example, and I know um, areas that you are also interested in this, is from this idea of more community-based treatment options um, and also using uh, sort of liaisons, training police officers in crisis intervention, um, also doing more sort of supportive housing models, that sort of thing. So there are a lot of sort of interesting pieces to our plan that's probably the most comprehensive mental health care proposal that's been put forth by a candidate ever. I can't imagine anything more comprehensive than this um, in the past. So. So that's definitely uh, an issue. Another point, though, that I think uh, is common to, to both parties that has become more of an issue is the issue of suicide prevention. In the NBC forum last night, um, there was mention about suicide prevention for military persons. Um, in Hillary Clinton's plan, she also talks about beefing up the suicide prevention at colleges and universities uh, with the, sort of a $50 million um, initiative there. And I think it also kind of harkens back to the, the difficulties with the two parties' very, very different stances on gun control issues. And that's something which, which, yeah, I thought we were going to get back to that sooner or later. Um, right. I mean, I, I think that this is this is a, a really big issue, a very controversial one, and and one of the concerns I think I've had sometimes is that when uh, one of these terrible uh, mass shootings occurs, it uh, it seems that turning the conversation to mental health uh, is almost a way of diverting from uh, harm reduction measures such as gun control and actually risks scapegoating people with, with mental health problems by identifying all people with mental health problems as, as potentially being very, very dangerous. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a very fine line that people walk. Um, I think that uh, the majority of Democrats who have weighed in on this issue have not tried to push it into the realm of, uh, of mental health issue per se. Um, but again, you know, you have sort of historically people who are, um, you know, want, want defense of gun rights, but they also don't want to have their personal liberties taken away. But 
when you sort of invoke the spirit of mental health as being more of a problem than guns itself, you're doing that exactly. And um, there hasn't been good traction with proposals, for example, to, to track, um, to do, you know, federal database registry where people, uh, you know, information could get fed into that system across state lines. Um, you know, when we've had proposals like this, they, they typically, pardon the pun, get shot down um, and, and nothing really happens. So, so it is interesting to move it into that realm, but then not have a, a clear idea of, of how that actually does malign people with mental health issues and how that, that is, you know, it is obviously related in some way. It is probably not the primary reason. The, the other um, issue, I think, which has come up a lot in this election is the, the idea of immigration to the States, and specifically immigration uh, from, from what we could very broadly term the Hispanic population. Now, we published a review recently in The Lancet Psychiatry, um, of which Maria Rakendo was one of the authors, actually, sort of specifically looking at the, the uh, resiliences and the challenges uh, which the uh, Hispanic immigrant population in the United States face in terms of their mental health. And there are a few mentions there of, of health issues in general. Um, is this a, a, a big deal as far as either of the candidates are concerned? And can you see it being a big deal with the American public in this election? Immigration is obviously uh, an issue for people on the right, um, as opposed to the left. Uh, it's definitely been kind of a common refrain. It, it gets muddled somewhat, I think, in this more of global conflict than talking about immigration more broadly because of, for example, Syria. But in terms of domestic borders, people who are coming from Mexico or Central America are probably the, um, the most likely immigrants that are, are coming through. But uh, in terms of illegal immigration, things have really dropped off. So it is sort of interesting that it's become this hot point issue, even though the peak, I think, was 10 years ago or something. So things have dramatically fallen off. But what is so difficult, I think, about people who are immigrants um, and who are in the country not legally, that becomes a real challenge. And what's interesting, uh, you know, the, the statistics about Hispanic people in the U.S. and mental health is really pretty staggering. I mean, we know that about 30% of, of uh, people who are Hispanic um, don't currently have health care, which is an issue. But then also, I think for females who are Hispanic, you know, nearly 50%, as you know, um, have some diagnosable depressive disorder, which is which is, you know, well above average. Um, so it's this kind of double whammy of, of issues of, of people who are more likely not to have access to health care, but who might be more likely to need mental health treatment. Um, and under the Affordable Care Act, those people are not currently eligible for um, health care access. Um, but I think, you know, it, it, it sort of brings up the issue more generally of just, the kind of impaired and I would say reduced capacity in some ways of our system to treat people with mental health problems in general. So removing access to health care is even one more barrier that someone would have to face if they're, they're seeking treatment. There's also sort of the, the interesting aspect of uh, the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, 
um, which was passed in 2008. And uh, interestingly, uh, Hillary Clinton was one of the co-sponsors of that. Um, and that, uh, you know, through the, the mandate of treating um, mental health issues with physical health issues, the parity there, and that health insurers are um, liable to, to treat things um, in the same way. And there's still a lot of issues with that coming to play in practice. And, for example, insurers finding ways around it, like using sale-first requirements, or also making it that much more difficult for providers um, to, to be remunerated so that a lot of them just sort of opt out of networks and do private pay just because the, the system itself is so complex and challenging. So not only do people who are here as immigrants have difficulties seeking mental health resources, but for those of us who were born here, the, the same the same challenges exist, probably not quite at the same scale, but but uh, to be sure, there's major issues. Okay, and, and one of the things in tackling any complex issue of which uh, mental health provision in the States is one, is that when you have a deadlock political system, everything's very difficult. Now, we spoke about Maria Kendo earlier, uh, referring to, to this uh, as being a, a sort of very vitriolic campaign. Certainly from my perspective uh, in the UK, the polarization is really quite incredible. I mean, whoever wins at this election, can you see uh, any way to, to walk back from this uh, to a, a more sort of cooperative, maybe respectful tone to U.S. politics? Or is this just uh, what we're, we're all going to have to learn to live with? Well, I think it comes down to how well, um, and this is, this is me off the cuff, but how well the, uh, if Donald Trump were to win the presidency, which I think is still not uh, um, that likely. But if it were to happen, to come to pass, um, I think it depends on how well that the Republicans in Congress do managing him and sort of up managing um, his influence and exerting that. And clearly his kind of wavering stance on what seems to be important to him, depending on the day or the region of country he's visiting, is going to matter in terms of moving things on the agenda up or down. But... I think because in the last few years of, of work that's gone in on both sides to kind of craft these, these really large-scale mental health reform acts, that there is some reason to be optimistic that, um, that those will still remain high on the agenda. And really, as, as frustrating and awful as it is, all it takes is another mass shooting for this, you know, this kind of resurgence of of interest in, you know, what are we doing to to help people um, to cope better? Um, and it's clearly, you know, with 20% of Americans having some sort of diagnosable disorder, it's something that affects everyone regardless of, of what their political stance is. And, um, you know, for even for people who are very um, hardcore conservative or, you know, very supportive of the military, they see those, you know, same mental health problems occurring within uh, military personnel and, and seeing that as a priority and um, trying to figure out new ways of treatment through the VA, for example. It's, it's enough of an issue that I think everyone has a horse in, uh, in the race, um, so to speak, and, and that it is something that will continue to be a priority. Um, 
That said, if Hillary Clinton becomes president, I think that there is uh, a much better shot of some of these reforms coming to pass sooner and probably without incident, um, and, and that's probably to everyone's benefit. Okay, well, we'll be watching things very closely between now and November. Uh, but for now, Rebecca Cooney, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And thanks also to you, the listener, for downloading this podcast, and I hope that you'll join us again next time. Goodbye.